Okay, cool. We're recording. Awesome. Well, um, thanks for coming on, Guy, uh, to Spotcast. Um, again, just for anyone who's listening for the first time, it's just a free-flowing conversation with two people virtually, um, and I like to interview accountants, not only just about their business, uh, but also their life. Um, so thank you so much, Guy, for coming on and giving us some of your time today. Um, previously, um, in your past you were the ex-CEO for Rexel Group, which used to be General Electric Australia. Is that correct? Yeah, GEC, which is a little bit, it was a division of General Electric, yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. And um, I know every time we talk, you know, you, you did that, but now you're trying to keep yourself busy and on the side you um, actually have your helicopter license, is that? Yeah, I did. I um, When I sort of retired from big corporate, I uh, I had a year off and sat on my boat and did all the relaxing things I always thought would be what it, you know, what it would be like. But um, as much as I still love boating, I, I don't want to do it 24 seven. And, and I think, you know, most people, they need a, a bit of mental stimulation. So, you know, I, in that first year, I did a little bit of consulting for friends and that, but mostly I, you know, I was just doing the relaxing. And then I, I got to the stage I needed a challenge and most of my life I've challenged myself with something something or other and um yeah i i tried to find the the thing i guess that was probably in my mind one of the hardest things i could think of doing um and that was to fly a helicopter because inherently they're not sort of made to fly um yeah you know, aircraft, aircraft will glide they um you know they, they're basically aerodynamically made to fly whereas a helicopter is is not so um i always thought that was a, a bit of a challenge something that certainly doesn't look like it should fly anyway and um i uh yeah i took that on well well, whenever I see, you know, just like inside a helicopter cockpit, there's so many controls and stuff. Are you really touching all of those uh, at all the time or there's some of the stuff you just never touch? Um, it's probably as hands-on as you can possibly get. Um, to give you an idea, um, a lot of the procedures that the fixed wing guys use, they can they can actually be writing things down and doing that kind of thing. Um, we can't. I mean, you really can't be taking your hands off the controls for too long at all. Um, so you you at most times are using hands and feet. And the difference between, say, a car and a, a helicopter is that with a car, everything you do only has a primary action. So if you want to go faster, you press the accelerator, but it doesn't then turn left as well. Um, and if you want to stop, you press the brake and it brakes and it doesn't have any other unintended consequence, whereas every single action on a helicopter has an unintended consequence. So, for instance, okay. when you pull on the power, the helicopter will spin um, and which direction it spins depends on, on where it's made. Um, and the reason for that is American helicopters, um, blades rotate counterclockwise and European ones yep. are clockwise. So depending on where it's made, it will spin left or right um, as an unintended consequence of pulling in more power. So as you pull in the power, you also have to use your tail rotor, which is your feet, to undo the unintended consequence. So everything you do in a helicopter has an unintended consequence. It has to be negated. So, yes, it is much more complex. Now, you don't use all the dials and all the switches all the time, but you are forever multitasking. Okay. Jeez, there's a lot going on there. Okay. <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm, uh, I'm whinging that my, my fiance is dragging me to dancing classes in the evening. And I find that difficult with all the steps and 
Oi. The other thing that's sort of, I only describe the flying, that's part of it, but the other part is you have to talk to air traffic control and you have to be on the right frequency to do that. And as you cross certain waypoints, you have to change frequencies and you have to have your transponders on the right frequencies as well. So there's a lot of other things you have to do besides aviation. So while you're up there, you know, you have to check your monitor your engines. It's not it's not so much like a car, you know, I mean, technically you probably should monitor engines in a car, but if it fails, it's not critical whereas if your temperatures are starting to rise in a in a helicopter well then you want to know about that and do something about it so you know there, there's yeah. more to do but particularly you know always being on the right frequency knowing when you have to speak to air traffic control knowing if you're about to go into a restricted airspace like around sydney okay. we have um you know we've got williamstown air base to the north we've got the navy base to the south we've got um holsworthy which you're not allowed to fly over richmond um, wow okay There'll <laughs> be a lot of easy mistakes a moron can make and <laughs> fly over and probably get fined and yeah exactly yeah yeah you get a ticket <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> oh, imagine they're quite big too um okay cool all right so yeah that's that's a lot and that's exciting um if you're closer i'd say i'll oh, come pick me up and we'll go to the pub after this that would be great <laughs> um but cool so what are you what are you doing now um as in work wise you mean yeah, yeah, work-wise. So, yeah, you did the Rexel thing. You took a year off, did some boating. Um, but then to keep busy, you started something else. Yeah, well, um, basically, I, probably getting into consulting was unintended. I um, okay. I started off in my year off by just consulting to a few friends that asked me to. Um, and, okay. you know, they asked me to help a little bit with the business. And then when that little bit became a little bit more, obviously, I, I got to the stage I was doing enough time, I had to charge for it. So then you have yeah. to charge, so you have to open a company so that you can produce an invoice. And um, so I sort of got into consulting unintentionally. Um, but what I, once I did, I found some things I liked about it. I, I like the the freedom and the flexibility of being able to work when you want to work. Um, mm. I like the flexibility of being able to choose the clients you want to work with and the projects you find interesting. Um, yeah. Believe it or not, I find it much more strategic than as a CEO, as a, you know, in theory, a CEO should all be, you know, should all be strategic. Um, but the reality is you spend a lot of time, you know, solving personnel problems, you know, so so-and-so is not working properly with so-and-so and all these kind of, um, you know, things that are really, um, well, what would you say? They're maintenance tasks as opposed to, to really working on the strategy. Whereas as a consultant, you, you can pretty well bleed, breeze in, you can work on the strategy. Um, I, I try and take it beyond what a lot of consultants will just produce a strategy. I try and take it to the execution piece. But mm. um, with the execution piece, I'll give them all the, the mandates on what to execute, but someone else, you know, the operating people in the business have to execute it. Um, I'll, I'll help them with the roadmap. I'll, I'll certainly let them know what needs to be done. But, um, you know, I'm not spending my time on, you know, uh, what would you say, you know, chasing people up to make sure they've done things. I'll, I'll give them the yeah. roadmap, make sure the, you know, the the people within that business that are charged with doing that do it and I'll, I'll hold them accountable for it or help the owner hold them accountable but um you know ultimately i'm not spending i'm spending all my time or 85 percent of my time on strategic stuff which is much more rewarding yeah okay so i imagine it's a huge breath of fresh air kind of to be out of that and just focus on what you're more interested in yeah look don't get me wrong um i loved what i did while i did it um, so I, if I had my time again, I'd absolutely do it again and probably do it the same mm. way. Um, okay. but it's time now for something different. And, you know, a lot of people with, with years of experience as a CEO become a, you know, become 
basically professional non-executive board members. Um, I have got a couple of board roles, but essentially I'm probably a bit more hands-on than that in, in what I do, but it's the same sort of concept. You're, you're now yeah. using your experience to guide a multitude of organisations instead of, you know, zeroing in on one and, and getting down in, and into the detail. Yeah. Well, last time we talked, I, I really liked what you said that you're bringing basically big business ideas and you're bringing them to small business now because honestly, they can they can do the same stuff essentially if they have the right person to guide them. So is that, would you say that's kind of your mission of what you're doing or? Yeah, for sure. It's, um, in fact, I'd argue they need it a lot more. Um, mm. In big business, a lot of the reasons you use consultants is because you're actually covering your backside in case something goes wrong or you're trying to get the board to sign off on something. And if you can, you know, not to name any, any particular company, <laughs> if, you, if you turn around and say to the board that a big, one of the big four have signed off on this, um, that gives them confidence to give you, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in some case. Um, yeah. So it's not that you didn't know what to do. And most of the companies, like as I got into running the bigger companies, um, you know, we had a whole C-suite full of experts. I had a strategist and, um, you know, you could, so we had the internal capability of producing everything that the consultant could. And in fact, like most consultants, I got most of the information from us and then just presented it in a different way. Um, but we, you know, we had the capability and we were really getting them to endorse what we were doing as opposed to actually telling us what to do. Um, whereas a small business actually needs that. You know, a lot of the, my clients today don't have a CFO or certainly don't have a strategist. Mm. Um, they don't have, um, you know, a lot of them don't have a, a, you know, a marketing director. or So there's all these areas where they will get a lot more out of, you know, top tier consulting than, than what a, a, you know, AXX 200 company would. Having said that, they can't afford it. So, um, you yeah. know, literally most of the engagements that I I um, gave to consultants were, you know, several hundred thousand dollars. And, um, you know, mm. most of the companies I'm dealing with now, that might be the whole annual profit or some of them don't make a profit, but some of them are, are asking for help because they, they're not profitable. So yeah. you can't turn around and ask, you give them a hundred thousand dollar bill as your first, um, <laughs> as your first step to improving their profitability. So we, we had to come up with, um, or say innovative ways of, of, you know, helping them and getting paid. Um, and, and what that usually comes down to is having some sort of skin in the game, some sort of, um, whether it be equity or whether it be a success fee or, you know, but ultimately what it does is it makes us put our money where our mouth is because if we don't really believe in the project, then we're not going to work either cheap or for free on the basis of getting okay. something down the track. Um, so, you know, I guess it gives the the client a lot of confidence too, because you know, we must truly believe in one, their business and two, our capability. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't put skin in the game. So essentially what we're doing is we're getting paid by putting skin in the game. And um, you know, the the philosophy is that we get paid out of the extra profit we help them make. Okay. Awesome. So it's not, I guess, what a traditional pricing model would be. Is it a little bit different? A hundred percent. You know, I, okay. I, I sort of joke when you pay by the hour, you get lots of hours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's a good one. Well, can you imagine building a house and agreeing to tr pay a tradesman by the hour? You know, I mean, there'll be a blowout every single time, wouldn't there? Then that's why everyone, when they're building houses, want a fixed price contract because they want to know what they're in for. Um, yep. And I don't see why consulting should be any different, really. I mean, we, you know, in most cases, we'll spend a, a couple of days looking at the business and then we'll form a view of what we can do and what we can't. 
Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll put a, a proposal together that, you know, means that if you win, we win. And um, mm. so it, it helps with them. It helps them afford it because quite literally they couldn't afford our fees if they had to pay cash up front. Uh, yeah. And secondly, it gives them real confidence that we have skin in the game and we believe in what we're doing because, you know, bluntly, look, when I was a CEO, I didn't like consultants very much because quite often they came in, gave you 200 pages of advice um, and then left. And when you told them the advice didn't work, they'd say, well, you didn't use it properly. Um, okay. A bit defensive maybe. Well, not even that, but they didn't take any responsibility for the execution. It was purely, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write down a, a roadmap that in a vacuum would work. And, but life's not in a vacuum. You know, you have to take into account the competency of the team that's implementing it and all those kinds of things. But when we go into a business, I talk about tangible outcomes and the tangible outcome has to be more profit or, yeah, 90% of the time it's more profit. Um, okay. And there's usually drivers of profit that come before, you know, the profit's the outcome, the, the you know, you have to put certain inputs in and, and we'll work out what they are. Um, yeah. To me, just telling someone that that's what needs to be done isn't enough. We have to help them for, you know, it might be their team's not capable of doing it. So we have to, you know, help them build the team they need to build. And it, it might be, um, you know, their remuneration policy doesn't engage the staff or whatever. You, you're not operating in a vacuum. You're operating in the real world. You're operating with human beings. They need to be capable and motivated. Um, so we mm. take all that into account and it's the outcome that we're delivering, not the not the advice. So I'm not selling advice, I'm selling outcomes. Ah, yeah, that's a great way to put it. And it's so awesome that, yeah, well, you experienced that firsthand, what you didn't like, and so you're going out not to do that. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't want someone to come in and advise me on what could happen in another company. I want someone to, you know, help me get that in my company. And um, mm. for that, you have to take in, uh, no company's perfect, so you have to take in all the imperfections and devise a plan that's going to get the outcome anyway. Ah. Wow. Well, see, that's the whole reason why we're talking here is because every time I talk to you, I feel like I come away with a big bucket of golden nuggets to take to the bank. And so I think that's worth repeating that, you know, you're not selling advice, you're selling outcomes, um, which is fantastic. Um, I guess another thing to segue, um, another thing that I really liked what you told me before is you really highlighted the significance of minor trends in a business and how essentially they are the, what add up together to be the big game changer in a business. Um, and yeah, yeah. So I guess if you could reiterate that, what you um, told me, that would be great. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll give you, um, yeah, I'll, I'll expand on that a little bit. Um, first of all, you know, to me, the good CEOs or good general managers are the ones that see a trend when it starts to change marginally. Um, mm. And and hence, um, you know, why I'm, I'm a real believer in visualization products. Now, most people, I, look, most people aren't, very numerate anyway, um, even CEOs, a lot of particularly smaller company CEOs, they've actually, you know, they've had a good idea or a good invention and and that's driven their success. And um, most of them, if you give them a spreadsheet, yeah, they might be able to read it a little bit, but they certainly, you know, can't get into the detail. And even a lot of finance people, they can, they can absolutely read them, they're literate, but they can't spot a trend early just by looking at a thousand numbers. Um, whereas when you start to use some visualizations and graphics and things like that, you, you can spot trends much earlier. But what often happens is people don't spot trends until it's too late. And the, the earlier the, you spot them and react, the better your business will be. And what I mean by that is let's say a business that's in a huge growth phase, 
it won't just generally turn into a V-shaped negative. It will tend to flatten off and then it'll plateau and then it'll start going down. But most people don't act until it's well and truly on the way down. You know, mm. that works on the 10% downslide. Whereas yes, what you're really looking at is, you know, the 10% upside has flattened to 5%, flattened to 3%, has flattened to zero. And at that point, you, you, know, you don't have to be a genius to predict that the, the trajectory is now down. Um, so if you acted when a, when a 10% growth company started to fall to five, you'll probably acted in time to, you know, it hasn't gone too far. You can absolutely arrest it. You can reassess, you know, why that's happening and, and take small actions to, um, you know, and it's no different to driving a car or, or a boat or something. If it's, if it's way off course, it takes a big correction. If it's a little mm -hmm. bit off course, it takes a little correction. And, um, yeah, businesses are no different. So the earlier you get them and the, the less they become off course, the easier it is to fix it. Um, now, in, in the current environment, there can be some very small changes that make big differences. Like I've got a client with a $10 million debt. And, you know, I've pointed out recently, you know, he, he sent me something saying, you might want to have a look at this. It's from our bank. It's a small interest rate rise. And I had a look at the small interest rate rise and it was about 50% of his profit. And it was only yeah. a small interest rate rise, but a small interest rate rise on a $10 million debt makes a big difference. So Huge. that then makes us go back and look at our pricing policy because all his competitors have the same problem. So everyone will either go broke or reprice their customers. And if everyone's repricing the customers, that should be acceptable to the market. It's called inflation. Mm. Um, but if you sit there and you don't reprice them, you, you've actually lost a whole year's profit before you worked out what was wrong. Um, and that's where we can use some modeling and some forecasting and, um, you know, that's some of the tools that we're, we're using with Spotlight where we say, well, let's let's factor in what happens when interest rates hit 2.5%. Um, and we can we can predict it. And, um, you know, you can show them what it's done to the profit. And that's not just about earlier prediction of a bad result, but it allows you to correct your pricing model or, or you know, make other changes in your business to, to fix that. Because often it's only small percentages that make big differences. And, and very simply... Uh, you know, um, if you've got a $10 million debt and you're making, say, a couple of hundred thousand dollars um, profit, mm -hmm. a $10 million debt means that you're going to lose $100,000 for every 1% interest rate rise. Jeez. So, so um, you know, you, you only have a 2.5% rise, which certainly could happen in the next few years. Um, yep. Could destroy your entire profit if you don't act, and and that's the kind of thing we want to get ahead of the curve and um, very curable when you when you understand it and get it early. Yeah, and I think it's so crucial that you shared a real life example too, because oftentimes you know you say some like a idea, oh minor trends are what make up the big trends, and I think most people say, uh huh, yeah, that's easy to understand, I get that, um, but then they don't practice it or act on it. Um, so yeah, thanks for sharing the story. <laughs> I guess do you have any other ones too, or? I can give you more um, conceptual ones in that I think it's really um, key at the moment because we're in a world that's changing. So we're, we've gone from, you know, probably 20 years of, I think it's literally something like 20 years where we haven't had an interest rate rise at all. Um, okay. But at the same time, you've got oil prices at all time highs and things like that. So, yep. you know, so if you've got a business that uses a lot of fuel, you have to predict what it will look like. You know, if you take a the you know the worst examples is airlines. You know, a little a small increase in fuel makes a big in, um, difference to the um, to the profitability of an airline. But you know, any sort of freight company or trucking company is going to have to factor in their their fuel costs. 
Um, and it, yeah, so you, you, you're changing inflationary and deflationary environments. And, you know, I, someone explained it to me the other day because you're probably hearing a lot on the news going, oh, look, but a 1% increase like in interest rates, who cares? It's like I remember when they were 15. But you got to remember when they were 15 and they went to 16, that's a very small increase as a percentage. So, you know, one and a half percent increase on 15 is only 10% increase in dollars. Yep. But if it goes from one to two, it's 100% increase in dollars in, in interest. So okay. they are very small numbers, but they're, they're big increases. You know, 1% in this environment is 100% um, more dollars. So, yeah, um, yeah so I, I think fuel would be a good example. I think... Um, 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 Certainly interest is a good example, but then you can run off into some other um, areas where, you know, we've, we've looked at some companies and found trend-wise that, you know, you look at their overall trend and they're losing money, but then you break it down into, say, four, four product segments or four customer segments, and some of them are very profitable, and then there's one that's killing you. And by yeah. being able to segment that and look at the trends, um, you can see this one's this particular one's fallen over and sometimes all it takes to make that company profitable is stop doing the one that's killing you um, mm. or double the one that's not. And, you yeah. know, I, I had a practical example where one client, we found that they were making a great margin. Yeah. You know, or they were making sort of three times the margin on one customer segment and they were actually winning 50% of the jobs they tended. In the oh, other wow. segment, they were winning 4% of the jobs they tended and making one third the margin. Yet their advertising was all geared at the one that was a lot not profitable. So all we did is shifted the advertising and marketing efforts into the profitable one. Okay. I imagine maybe his mindset was, oh, I need to do advertising for that one because it's low. But so he just switched it to the profitable one. And then did he just drop that one completely? Or pretty much what we um what we did is and and it wasn't so much it was slow, it's because it was new. So people often look for growth and then uh -huh. they go, you know, they go to a marketing firm. In this case, they got some external advice. And they went to a marketing firm and said, oh, we could add this market segment. But they didn't measure it. And by not measuring it there, they added some sales to it. And, and it was deemed to be a success because now we've got sales in an area we didn't have before. But the problem mm -hmm. was not only was it unprofitable, but the workload was killing them because there was, you know, if you only win 4% of the quotes, it means you have to do thousands of quotes to get a few jobs, right? Okay. So the workload just killed their staff. And in the end, they put more staff on, which further, you know, it just became a death spot. Of course. Um, okay. Whereas then we turned around and said, but have a look at this segment. You're winning 50% of the work, right? And you're making 33% margins. And we just need to do more of that. And there's plenty more of it out there. So, um, but that's, you know, again, that's a that's an example of where detail, the devil's in the detail. Yeah. Okay. No, that that, that makes me think of this because, um, I mean, oftentimes in life, you know, to to become who you, you, should, you can be, you, you got to give up who you are currently or you have to give up something in your life and and it makes this um analogy come to mind the monkey trap analogy have you um heard this one before it's about how to catch a monkey uh, it's vaguely familiar but i can't say no please tell me yeah yeah okay okay so it's um basically they and they design this box right that has like space in the middle and it has a hole to that space um, and the hole is, oh, and sorry, and the fruit is in the middle of the box, so, you know, or whatever a monkey wants. Um, so then they make a hole into that box that's just small enough so the monkey can reach his hand in the box and grab the fruit. But once he grabs that fruit, he cannot take his hand out because the hole's too small. Um, but, you know, monkey brain, 
monkey see, monkey do, grabs the fruit, and he just, yeah, stays there, and you catch the monkey. So um, that's how it is. A lot of times, like maybe that, in that example you just shared with me, you hold on to something, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be your end. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And um, people just in business, they often don't understand that what worked three or four years ago may not work today. And, you know, one of the things I try and help people with too is see into the future. You know, I mean, mm. how's, how's artificial intelligence going to affect your business? How's escalating food prices going to affect your business, either positively or negatively? And are you likely to be killed by a disruptor or, or could you be the disruptor? Um, uh-huh. You know, because if you have a look, everyone thought that, say, when Virgin Airlines started, it was going to kill Qantas. It didn't kill Qantas, it killed train trips because no one was going to get on a train and go to Brisbane for $200 when you can get a Virgin flight for 80 uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, everyone saw it, an airline would be aiming up on an airline, but it killed Greyhound buses, it killed Qantas, it killed all those. Uh, sorry, it's not Qantas. It killed Greyhound buses, it killed you know, train travel, it killed all those things a lot worse than it killed the airlines. Um, and that's the kind of thing, you you know, I try and get people to understand, you know, the kind of effect an Uber might have had on a, a taxi industry. I mean, who would have... Huge. And who would have thought the biggest taxi company in the world wouldn't own a car? Mm. Or the biggest yeah. hotel <laughs> chain, in, you know, the biggest hotel chain in the world now doesn't own a, a room. Oh, uh, like what, Airbnb? Is that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, yep. now I'm not saying I could have predicted those things were going to happen, but they're a classic case of being, you know, being hit by something you couldn't see coming. Um, mm. There's other examples where it's more obvious, and uh, an example of that might be, you know, how is Amazon going to affect your distribution business tomorrow? You know, is if and and you know, back in my Rex old days, we did a lot of work on that. How's how's those guys, you know, whether it be Amazon or or, or someone like them. Um, going to affect our business you know we're specialists in a certain field but these guys are specialists of distribution and unless we get really good at distribution they're going to blow us off the park um mm. so they're the kind of things that you you know i, I call it trying to see around corners yeah yeah that's huge in amazon oh what a beast um scary <laughs> scary stuff <laughs> um but uh back to the um the monkey analogy is there anything that's i guess been in your life that like you've let go of and that's really improved your life um that's a good question i i could answer it a couple of ways and probably nothing as graphic as the monkey <laughs> yeah yeah you didn't <laughs> lose an arm or anything like that yeah, I, I used to play NRL football and I did that for many years. And, and when I finished, I had some opportunities to stay in the game in in some capacity. And and obviously being in a professional sport, it's quite addictive. The camaraderie is great the, yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff. So on one hand, it's tempting to to want to stick around. But um, I I cut the cord and I, I went and did something completely different and um, and ended up being a CEO of a big business. So that that was sort of one example where I, you know, if you talk about complete change, um, I didn't have a choice of staying as an athlete. I, I retired because of injuries, but I could have stayed in the environment. Um, okay. But I chose to get out, of, got out of the environment. Um, and, and to some degree, I also did that when I was at, um, I, my first CEO role was at a company called John Turks. And um, I was uh, sitting there, it was about a $200 million company at that point of time. Um, okay. We, We'd grown it, not with me as CEO, but I, I'd been CEO for about three years. But from the time I started there, it was about $20 million in turnover. And by the time I, I finished there, it was about 200. Um, and, um, but 
the last few years I've been CEO, it was a well-run business. Um, it had good profit, really good profitability for that industry, probably the best. Um, wow. We had great camaraderie in the business, so it was it was like a family. It, it, it was a family-owned business and that sold to a, a big public company, but um, we still had a family feel in the business. And um, you know, it was even though none of the family members work there anymore, the one the people that, that culture stayed. Yeah, and, and yeah, we you know the people that have been there for for many years actually felt like we were family. It was really comfortable. It was a great environment. We all liked each other's company. And, you know, we we had a lot of sort of good trips outside of work and things mm. like that. So it was a terrific place to work. It was easy for me, even though as a CEO, you go, how could it be easy? But it, it was a business with a great culture. So even if I didn't come to work for three months, I don't think much would have changed. Um, everyone <laughs> had to do their job. They, you know, so it was really a, a very easy role, um, but it wasn't challenging. So okay. at some point I got op- offered the opportunity to run Rexel and that was the opposite. It was, it was a bit of a mess. It was losing money. Um, it was probably, if Turks were the most profitable business in the market, it was probably the least profitable business in the market. Um, mm. and, and that was probably where I, you know, I let go of that, that Apple too, and, um, yep. which was risky, but um, it was also hugely rewarding because, you know, whether it be personal reward or how you get paid, you get paid to make a difference. And um, at at Turks, honestly, I I wasn't making a difference. I think I was doing a great job. We didn't need a difference because it was terrific. Um, Whereas I then got out of my comfort zone and went to a place that absolutely needed a difference. And it wasn't just me. It was a whole management team that did it. But, um, you know, we we made a difference, which was both financially and personally rewarding. Oh, that's awesome. And, I mean, that just seems like a common theme, though, from what you're telling me about your life is you're constantly stepping outside of your comfort zone and, and growing through that. And it's, maybe it's not fun at sometimes, but, you know, you're rewarded with such a, well, rewarding feeling at the end of it. Yeah, I haven't done it. I, I don't do it every year or anything. I, I haven't done it that <laughs> often. But when I've done it, it's been make or break. It's been meteoric changes. Mm-hmm. And every time it's been very rewarding. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's good. You're realistic. So you're not doing it every, maybe every day, every week, you know, and um, not every year is a really realistic thing. Because sometimes, um, you know, you just get so busy with what's going on in your life where you, you maybe you don't have time to make a big change or anything like that. So, um, yeah, good to have some realism. Some people probably do make a big change every year, but I don't think that's right for me. I think, you know, I've probably only made big changes three or four times, but each time they were they were really relevant. And, and even now, um, not, not that it was a big change. It was kind of, as I said, I kind of got into this accidentally, but I've now decided <laughs> yeah. to do it. And if I'm going to do something, I want to be the best I can be. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's also been rewarding in a different way. It's nowhere near as financially rewarding as running billion-dollar companies. But um, seeing the, the um, effect you have on, on owners, families, and things like that where, you know, you got people that, were going broke and no longer going broke or people that had a dream that couldn't make it work and now they're making it work um that's you know how do you put a price on that you can't hmm that's awesome well hey thank you so much um it's been so great you know having a chat with you um i'm a huge fan of take-home messages um so i just wanted to ask you maybe what's the biggest thing i guess in your life that has changed you or or um what's some advice you could give like one piece of advice to a a young buck like me who's uh just starting out (laughs) 
okay, this isn't a Dorothy Dix question. I wasn't expecting it, so let me. <laughs> but I, I, I want to give you a good answer, so I'll um, I'll just yeah, take a moment. Yeah, rather than spit out a, a cliche, I'd like to um, to um, come up with something good. Um, yeah, look, I, there's one that I um, you know, there's probably several principles that that guide anyone's life, and um, mm-hmm. one of them that I quote to my clients quite often. It's probably a nice take-home message for you know, a lot of, a lot of business people that are. Oh, it, it applies to life as well. Um, when I played in the NRL, there was a an iconic coach here called Jack Gibson, and um, mm-hmm. Jack was a um, yeah he was considered to be the best coach ever in his day. Um, he's okay. since passed away, but um, and I, I was lucky enough to have three years of him when I started my career. And um, he uh, I, I won't even say he necessarily made me a much better footballer. I think there was other coaches who were just as technically good, but he was a really good man manager. And I remember mm-hmm. one instance where I um, I turned up at training and I was I might have been my first year in and I was you know, 19 or 20 and I was young and fit. And um, anyway, we, we only had one day off a week. So we trained Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, played Saturday. Oh, sorry, trained Saturday, played Sunday. So we only had one day off. Wednesday. So anyway, I got there on a Thursday and and Jack said, um, oh, did you train yesterday? And I sort of looked a bit confused and I've gone, no, oh, that was my day off, wasn't it? Don't we get Wednesdays off? And he he looked at me and he said, um, oh, yeah, but I thought you would have trained. And straight away I started to get concerned because, you know, don't you think I'm fit enough? Don't you think I'm good enough? What's, you know, all these yeah. sort of insecurities creep in. And, and I said, oh, I, I, no, I... I wanted to recharge the batteries. I didn't think I'd need to. I said, do you, do you don't think I'm fit enough? And he goes, no, no, you're one of the fitter guys here. Uh, you don't think my skills are up to it? No, 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 it's not that. You, you, you're progressing nicely. Why do you think I need to do extra training then? And he said, because when you go out on the field on Sunday, you know you did it. Mm. And he, he later on, he wrote a book says, you know, called Winning Starts Monday. And what Winning Starts Monday means is that on Everyone, when they get there Sunday, wants to win. But they don't necessarily all do what it takes to win. And what what it takes to win is what you do when no one's looking. All those little things. You know, in professional sport, they call them the one percenters. You know, if you get five one percenters right, you've got 5% advantage over your competitor. Um, So in business, it's the same. So everyone wants a result. That's called a dream, right? But are you doing all the little things that it takes to, you know, do you have the discipline? And another another sort of famous football coach, I've only seen YouTube clips, I've never met him, but um, his name's Nick Saban from the um, NFL in the US. And he talks about discipline. It's what you need, what you have to do, when you have to do it, how it's got to be done. Right. So most of us in business, we or in life for that matter, they, you know there's some things you really should do, but you just haven't done them. Um, so that, that's my takeaway is that you'll get out of it what you put into it, but it's it's not about putting in a big effort when everyone's watching. It's about all the little things you know you need to do and whether you have the discipline to do them or not. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I guess sometimes it's so hard to get motivated for those small little things and get your butt out of bed. Is there anything particular, that funny little thing that got you out of bed? You know, you needed a large iced coffee or something or, you know, I mean... I, I think no. I think it's more about um, I hate losing, and I like. I look. I don't have this view that I am the best. I just want to be yeah. my best. So, <laughs> yeah. 
And if you want to be, if you want another takeaway, it's funny because when you first ask, then they're hard to come by, and then all of a sudden they start to flow. But um, I think that the best thing you, best compliment anyone can ever give you is you, you were your best self, right? Mm. Uh, you know, when I played football, there was tons of people better than me, but I actually retired when I couldn't be as good as I used to be, right? So it was all about me being the best me, and um, so I think that the the thing that gets me out of bed and you know to the point of winning starts Monday. If I go to a um, a meeting, I want to know more about that subject than everyone else in that room. Mm. And you know, if, and that's me. That's what gets me out of bed. I just like to be the best I can be. So if I, um, you know, if I'm consulting now, if I go into someone's company, I'd like to know as much as I possibly can about that company before I even meet them. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I always tell my clients, if you go to any meeting, know what you want out of it. So how many times do people go to a meeting and they, you know, they go to a meeting because it's in their diary. But if you don't know that you want a 5% discount or you don't know that you want a two-week extension or you know, if you don't know what you want, the other guy's setting the agenda and you won't win. Mm. So, um, so you know, that, that's what gets me out of bed is to be my best self, I guess. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fabulous answer. So and sorry, I totally put you on the spot there, but here we are. <laughs> well, a good interview, I guess. Yeah, it keeps it interesting. <laughs> well, awesome. Um, I know your time is very valuable, and I don't want to um, keep you any longer, but um, thanks again so much for your time today, and um, yeah, all the best. And likewise, Ethan, I always enjoy um, our chats and um, and service I get from you, so it's, it's uh, mutually agreeable. <laughs> awesome. Glad to hear. All right. Well, cool. Well, I'll see you, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks. Cool. See you. Bye.